0: Welcome to Life Church. We are an X242 Community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through his word and by his spirit. It's called Cleaning House, and we're dealing with the subject of idolatry. Now, I've got an object lesson for us here. I'm just getting my idol, and I'll get on to that in a moment. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Exodus 32. You know, I encourage you to have your Bible with you. It doesn't have to be in paper form. It can be on your phone. Do you know why? In addition to what Jill just said, the very first words that we hear from the lips of Satan in the Bible are did God really say because if the devil can play off some of your ignorance about God's Word he can misrepresent God's words so that your interpretation fits the desire of your heart rather than the intent of God. So our understanding of the Bible is our defence against the attacks of Satan because he wants to find a way to cause doubt in you about God's Word so he can use it in a way that fits his agenda through working in the affections of your heart, rather than in the decision of heaven and God to use that word. So there is, a, there is an ongoing battle for the interpretation of God's word. We get it right back in the first few pages of Genesis. The struggle between what God wants us to know and what the devil wants us to know. And if the devil can use God's word in a way that gets his agenda met... He feels he's done it in a way that you actually think you're doing God a favor because you think you're being obedient to God's word. But our ignorance is the platform for the enemy to find an inroad into the hearts and the minds of people. So we need to we need to be familiar with God's word. We need to understand it. Even if it's difficult to understand at times, bear with it, labor with it. People say, Oh, Dave, you know, you've got a few degrees in theology and so forth. I have. But there have been many, many years when I've sat with this book in front of me and thought, I'm not quite sure what on earth that is going on about. I'm not quite sure whether I should be reading the old bits or the new bits or any other bits in between. But I've wrestled with it, I've persevered with it, and come through to a place where I'm, I'm comfortable now beginning to use that. And we as Christians, we need to be, because this is, this is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. It's the way we fight our battles. Okay, just with that in mind... Um, Then we're going to press into this subject of idolatry. Now, the reason I came to this subject of idolatry was because previously, as part of our Wednesday night Bible series called Logos, I did a series on the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the the prophet Jeremiah, he has this 40-year ministry, there or thereabouts, maybe a couple of years more. And one of the subjects he challenges God's people on for four decades is, it's the fact that he said God's people were idolatrous. And so I began to explain through this Jeremiah series what that meant. There were several practices in particular that God found abominable amongst his people. There was the worship of a god called Baal. There was a worship of a goddess called Asherah, amongst a few others. And the... And the the nation of Israel had become littered, cluttered with various other altars to idols that had nothing to do with Yahweh, with God himself. And as I was working through that sermon series, I kind of had a bit of a a moment of smugness. In my own spirit, I was like, God, I thank you that I'm not dumb enough to get caught up in all that idolatry nonsense. Those poor Israelites... How foolish were they that they thought that they could go up some mountainside to some carved image on a hill and feel that that was going to do them as, as much service as going to the temple and seeking God for themselves. But God rebuked me and challenged me that actually it's possible to be idolatrous without ever having bowed your knee to any carved image. Because the essence of idolatry isn't you going to some sort of Tibetan mountainside and praying to some giant Buddha up on a hill. The essence of idolatry is going to something other than God for what only God can give you. And when you do that, you are doing exactly the same thing As people did in the Old Testament when we read the pages of Scripture where they went to a false God to get their needs met rather than God because they thought that going to the idol to the carved image to the little statue would be a way to get them something that probably deep down they knew that God didn't want to give them now in order to kind of give you your object lesson for this today rather I thought oh perhaps I ought to bring in you know some little statue and I thought no I don't want to even give the appearance (laughs) that I'm bringing in some sort of false religious article into church. So instead I've brought you a Wreck-It Ralph. Now this is one of the toys that my kids have played with over the years, and not so much now since they discovered what Xbox is all about, kind of physical toys like this begin to lose their allure. Um, But Wreck-It Ralph is a figure based on a movie about a guy called Ralph who's in a computer game and his computer game is that he has to go and wreck this particular building. Now, if you're in a sticky situation and you feel that somebody has wronged you or hurt you or harmed you, and you don't feel like you're up to the task of kind of dishing out retribution or revenge for that kind of thing, you might at some time, you know, feel that it would be nice to have some sort of backup, some big burly person or some you know, a few burly people who can kind of come to your aid. I'm looking over at Charlie now, not because he's particularly burly, but he's kind of knocked around with a few types back in the day who were notorious for making sure that they, they encouraged people who needed to pay back a debt or... Um, were were somebody who's out of favor with somebody else to make sure that they encouraged them to be back in favor by using force in order to do that kind of like the heavy mob so to speak so what would happen in the ancient world when you wanted to do this if you didn't have anyone you could go to in in sort of some sort of actual relationship you could go to a little idol statue where that statue represented the thing that you wanted to get done so you could think okay this person has wronged me. I don't feel tough enough to deal out retribution. So I'm going to go to the temple of wreck Ralph, pay a little bit of an offering at the temple, provide a little bit of food and drink for, for Ralph uh, to consume, in the hope that the idol would perform on my behalf that which I wanted to see happen. And it would happen in temples, it would happen on hillsides, it would happen in places that we would would kind of traditionally associate maybe with that kind of practice. But it would also happen in the homes of people and they were called household gods. And in fact, if you read into uh, another part of the Old Testament, the story of Laban, Rachel and Jacob, who Jacob was the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. So that's in Genesis 31. There's this story in there where Rachel takes the household gods, the little statues, from the house of her father Laban, and she when they're making their way uh, uh, back to the land that God had given, Jacob through the promise to Abraham, Laban goes legging it after them because he recognized that his little household gods had been stolen. And he doesn't know that it's his daughter Rachel that had stolen them. And he catches up with them. And Jacob also doesn't know that Rachel has stolen the household gods. And he says to Laban, if you find that person who has stolen your gods, then you are within your right to kill that person. Now fortunately for Rachel, she through her own kind of wits and cunning, she says to her her father Laban, um, when he invites her to get off her, her, I think it's a camel, it may have been a donkey, but I'm sure it's a camel, he wants to check some of the, the kind of the, 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 the luggage that was strapped to the animal. So he asks her to get down, she says, no, Dad, I can't, I'm at that time of the month, it would be an embarrassment to me to do that. And he goes, oh, yeah, okay, that would be a, a dishonour to try and get you down from the animal. But while she's on the animal, she's, she's got these, this, this luggage there which is hiding the household guards. And that story teaches us that back in the ancient world, they took this stuff very, very seriously. Now, in the narrative, Jacob, he doesn't support the use of household gods. His wife, Rachel, has stolen these from her father, Laban. But these things were very, very common. Now, if I was to come to your house, I don't suppose, or at least I don't think so for many of you, you would have any little odd statues in your house which had anything to do with paganism or idolatry or any false religion. And that is good. If you have them, get them out. But, there can be things in our lives which we treat in our household as little kind of divine things that we go to instead of going to God for those things. Now, the writer, Bible teacher, and... and um, Professor Tim Keller, he wrote in his book this, in a book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but for example, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and and our community to achieve a higher place in business, for example, or to achieve more wealth and prestige. He recalls what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 14.3, we set up idols in our hearts. So what is an idol? It's anything that absorbs your heart or imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you, what only God was meant to give you. So when we go to anything other than God for what he should have given us, then that becomes a form of idolatry. Now, the Apostle Paul also says this. We're going to get on to the passage in Exodus in a moment. Paul says this to the church in in Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, whether it be sexual immorality, or impurity, or lust, or any evil desire or greed, because these are idolatry. He doesn't say they're similar to idolatry. He says these things are idolatry. So the importance of this subject of idolatry to the modern Christian is not that I'm challenging you to make sure you get that little statue to Buddha out of your garden. My challenge is to you, what is it in your life that has the kind of place and importance for you, the thing that you go to and use and want to leverage, which has become more valuable to you than God himself. Because when we do that, we are doing what Paul says, we are committing idolatry, because we are seeking from some source other than God, what God never intended to give us quite often we're using that as a leverage point, a spiritual leverage point, that we can, uh, we can find a way to gratify any desire that we might have in our hearts. And whether we are conscious or unconscious of what we are doing at that point, the Apostle Paul is clear, because he's challenging the church in Colossae. He's not saying, you know, when you go to the temple of such and such in Athens or wherever, you are getting involved in idolatry. He says, when you seek out the gratification of your heart in any source other than God, you are doing the same thing, but you don't have a physical object in front of you when you do it. You have a job, a career, a place, a set of values or principles, or things which you use to achieve the same end. It's the same cause, it's the same practice, it's the same values, it's just a different object that you go to to get those desires met. So, my challenge to us, my challenge to me as I prepared this over a few weeks, probably about eight weeks ago initially now, is that you run an inventory on what is going on in your heart that you have set up as being more important to you as God. Or you go to that thing with a sense of expectation rather than to God for that thing. It can be love, it can be connection. It can be anything that God had designed to give you that you seek to get another way. Now, let's get on to the the passage, the main principal passage in question, where this happened early on in the life of the nation of Israel, in fact, of the formation of God's people as a nation in Exodus 32. I've already asked you to turn to there, but I haven't turned there yet myself. There we go. I might need my notes, I might not, so I'll pick them up just in case. Now here is a very classical experience of idolatry in the life of the nation of Israel. Exodus 32 verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, let's make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with this very familiar story, Moses has gone up Mount Sinai because he wants to meet with God and God is going to give him these tablets of stone, these commandments, these values, these principles, these, these guiding laws for their life in order to give the, the, this, this, this nation that's being established at this point, it's a group of people, it's, a, it's an ethnic group that's becoming a nation right now, so Moses has gone up to meet with God, and he's been away a while, and while the man of God is away, the hearts of the people are laid bare. While Moses is not there to kind of steer people in the direction they should be going, in the absence of leadership, the hearts and the intents of those people comes to the surface. Now it goes on to say, verse 2, and Aaron replied to them. Aaron uh, is, is, is Moses' his right-hand man. He says, why don't you take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me? Where did they get this gold wandering around in the desert? You're thinking, these people have come through the sea, they've been chased by Pharaoh, they're going off on this kind of weird a kind of, a journey into the desert. Where did they get all of the bling? Now I can't go back, I'd love to go back and explore the verses that, 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 that sit behind this part here. But they got this gold from the people in Egypt. Before they left Egypt, Moses said to them, this is what you're going to do. When the final plague hits and there is a death of the firstborn in the land, you were to go to the Egyptians and ask for their gold and you're going to take that with you. Now, when you read that, initially you think gold is not really the kind of thing you need in the desert. There are no parties in the desert. You do need food, you do need water, but gold isn't high up on the list. If I was stuck in some desert, Gobi Desert somewhere, I tell you what, if you said you can take food or water or gold into the desert, I would take food and water every time. But they had gold. they put it on their ears. They were wearing it. They were thinking, this is nice. They'd taken it from the Egyptians. Why had God given them gold? Well, if you read into the story of Abraham, when Abraham, in Genesis 15, is warned that at some point, his people, the, the, the kind of fruit of his line, are taken into captivity. Abraham is warned that that would happen. God says, as a matter of judgment and justice on the nation of Egypt, doesn't mention Egypt, just says the land that your your descendants will be taken in captivity to, I'm going to make sure that they give you gold and silver. It was a way of God restoring the fortunes and bringing blessing back onto his people. He's saying you've come out of this season and time when you've been suppressed and repressed when you have been held in captivity slavery and you've gone without and as part of that as i bring you into a land that's going to flow with milk and honey i want to start to put back into your pockets what the enemy has stolen from you it was a sign of god's judgment on egypt and also a sign of god's favor on his people that he would begin to prosper them again but what did they do with that prosperity they used the blessing of god to create idols to meet the desires of their own hearts. What an affront to God to take the very thing that He sought to restore to them and then use it to make something that would give them the desires of their heart. So it says the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and they brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into the image of a calf. I'll come on to the significance of a calf in a moment. Then they said, Israel, these are now your gods. These are the ones who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it. And he made an announcement. There's going to be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. A festival to who? To who? Not to Yahweh. Now their hearts had been laid bare. They had now replaced who was Lord over their life. But do you know what, who was Lord over their life? It wasn't the calf. It was the desires of their own flesh and selfishness that had now become their Lord. The calf itself was just a physical object that represented something else the ones who had become Lord is that those people had become lords unto themselves They that created something that would serve the desires of their own heart they had created therefore a festival which was an indulgent of their own desires now they had become Lord for themselves when we go back into Genesis and the devil tempts Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve begin this dialogue with Satan about the Word of God. And they said, we've been told that if we eat the fruit, we're going to die. And the devil says, no, you're not going to die. He says, because God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What is the temptation there in Genesis? The temptation was that you can start being God yourselves. You will be like God. You won't be divine, but you will do what he does. You will make the rules. You will call the shots. You will make the decisions. You will establish the values. You will decide the parameters. You You will set the boundaries for your own life. God knows that once you come to this place of enlightening, this symbolic separation between you and God, by disobeying God, you take the mantle upon yourself to be like him for your own life. And this is what we see here in the nation of Israel. They are becoming Lord to their own life. The calf, the golden calf, is a problem. But it's not the cause. The cause is the unchecked desires of the human heart, which are behind this, carrying on. It says, early the next morning they arose and offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Then the people sat down to eat and to drink and to get up to party. The Lord spoke to Moses. Now you need to get down the mountain at once. For your people, you brought up from the land of Egypt. You notice that God saying like, you brought them up, Moses. It's your problem too. And Moses would be saying, no, no, no. <laughs> you parted the Red Sea. That was all of you, none of me. I couldn't do that when that was all on you. Can you imagine the kind of dialogue between them passing who, uh, responsibility around? He says, they've come out of Egypt and they are acting corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. The Lord also says to Moses, I have seen this people now, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. We'll leave it there. Now... As I kind of, kind of weave this into our midpoint of the sermon and bring it into a close in a few minutes' time. Why a calf? Why a calf? Why not a lion? Lions are pretty good, pretty ferocious. Probably quite handy to have a lion hanging around with you rather than a cow. You know, if you're going to go to that object that's that, idle because it represents what you want... You probably need some protection in the desert. Maybe a a lion, a tiger, something a bit... Maybe even a bear. You know, a bear could come in handy if you're being attacked. Why a calf? Unless you wanted to provide steak uh, for you, to go with your manna. Well, the reason the calf was chosen was because the calf was one of the principal deities in Egypt. It was attached to royalty. It was attached to Pharaoh. It was an image of the Egyptian god Apis. Apis was the calf god, which was part of the principal deity hierarchy within Egypt. It's what they knew. It was the the cult of Egypt that they'd seen and understood for 400 years. It was associated with the pharaoh and the pharaoh's household. That's why they chose a calf. So what are they saying through the calf is they're saying as we go forward in the freedom that God has given us, we're actually going to take him out of the equation and we're going to live in the freedom of God, but we're going to do it like we saw life being done in Egypt because we like the way that they were living back there. I like the way that Pharaoh was living. I like the way that the, 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 the posh ones in Pharaoh lived because they would have heard and seen Pharaoh himself bowing down to a golden calf. And they were thinking, well, if we're going to go forward into our own land, I kind of want to be a bit more like Pharaoh and less like Moses and God. I want the freedom of God, but I want to live like a Pharaoh. And it was a way of them expressing really what was in the the, the unchecked, unsanctified desires of their hearts. This struggle between the flesh and the spirit. We want This stuff We don't like being under the oppression of Pharaoh, but I want his gold, I want his prestige, I want his power, I want his notoriety, I want all of the accoutrements of that high office that he had and what he represented for myself. Therefore, I'm going to bow down to what he bowed down to. And we have to check ourselves as Christians about where ultimately the desires of our heart might lead us. That we don't use the freedom of God to walk in such a way that we still fulfill the desires of a life styled in Egypt. I want all of that stuff that the world has. I want to go after that. I want all of that prestige. I want all of the notoriety. I want all of the bling of it. And I'm going to fashion a, a, a kind of a system of law and, 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 and religious life that enables me to justify fulfilling the desires of the flesh when really I should be submitting to the principles of God. Because what Moses was going to come down the mountain with was a set of rules and regulations that would guard them indulging in the flesh. And so they are a picture of this point of the kind of the struggle for many of us, in fact, between what God wants and what our flesh wants. But it is an example to us. It's an example to us that we need to guard ourselves against creating golden calves, which are those things, those values, those principles that we see everybody outside of God's people bow down to and worship. And don't take the responsibility to get that, that junk out of our brain and out of our value system. Because that stuff won't exist as a golden calf It will exist as a set of values and desires in you that you feel justified pursuing the very things that Satan tried to use to tempt Jesus and try to get him off track from his spiritual walk. He took Jesus to a high place, the, the, the Bible says in the New Testament, and he showed him all of the cities of the world. And he said, if you would bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of that. All of that stuff. Look at it. Look at those cities. Jesus was was wise and godly, and he knew no matter how many cities, no matter how many nations, and whether he would become a pharaoh of pharaohs in the minds of people, it was more important to have nothing and be faithful to God than to have everything the world has to offer and betray God. And that should be the shaping, governing principle of how we live our lives. There should be part of us that recognises the vulnerability to be tempted to run after things that the enemy, the devil himself, would use to tempt you and get you off track. A load of shiny stuff, bright stuff, prestige, notoriety, adoration, people's attention, position, whatever those things are, they become therefore a golden calf that will get you off track. Let's bring this into land. So, God describes the people as being stiff necked. Now, some people say that stiff neck phrase is because actually, when you look at an idol, kind of like my Wreck It Ralph here, he has not really got any neck. Um, but back in the times where, or places where idolatry is practiced, the idols would have be made of wood, wouldn't they, or stone, and their necks would be stiff. So one interpretation of stiff necks is that you have become like the dead things, the stiff, wooden, stony things that you've worshipped. You've become like that which you've worshipped. And we're going to deal with that another week. But probably the, the most faithful and reliable interpretation of that is, is God saying you are stiff and difficult to lead. And there's some, phrases, uh, some uses of that phrase uh, later on in the scripture about animals which can't be led or steered because they've kind of they've made their neck stiff and the yoke upon them won't enable them to move because they're fighting against it. Like my t- two-year-old Tobias, when I say, come in, come inside. No, I'm playing. He doesn't say it like that, but his body language tells me that's what he's thinking. Actually, you can be stiff necked Tobias. Get that sin out of your life, young man. You're a pastor's kid. Come on, set an example. But God's saying, you can't be led, you can't be steered. And you know what? Where God can't steer you, you can't inherit. Where God can't guide you, you can't arrive. And all of this time, while they're bowing down to the molten cast calf representing the leadership of Egypt, all of the time, they're wanting to live like Pharaoh God is wanting to take into a land that flows with milk and honey. And as long as they remain stiff-necked, feeling like they've done themselves a favour, they're still stuck in the desert, not arriving at the destination that God set out for them. And while we get involved in the same kinds of things, we are robbing ourselves of the places, the destinies, the things that God wants to bring us to, because we're still wanting to take charge of our own lives and do things based on our desires and not on God's intent and plan. We miss out on the lands of milk and honey because we're happy and content to sit in the desert finding our altars of worship in the very things that we're supposed to be walking away from. All the time, we think we're doing ourselves a favour when we're robbing ourselves of God's best. God's best is ahead of you and with him with you, not looking behind you at what you think you could have had if you'd lived more like the people in the world. So my final challenge to you is this, is that God wants your full devotion. God wants you completely and utterly. He doesn't want us to say we are followers of God, but yet in our spare time, every now and then, we find that little kind of golden calf in our own life and we we have a little bow and a curtsy to that because it might just do us a favour. God wants us to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, everything. if god's not Lord of all he's not Lord of all, Lord at all. And do you know where that phrase comes from? He loved the Lord you want to love the Lord with God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anyone know where it comes from? The story of Jeremiah as it as it relates to Josiah, who was a reforming king. Josiah discovers the book of the law when it had been absent for many generations, and he recognises that the way the people of God were living was in contradiction to the word of God, there was idolatry, and as the king, he made it his mission to rid Israel of idolatry, the high places, the statues of uh, the, the, the... the the worship of Asherah, the worship of Baal, the worship of Molech. And it says of Josiah, there was never a king like him who loved the Lord thy God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. So when Jesus takes those words and uses them in the New Testament... The backdrop, the context, the pretext for all of that was situated in a time when a king decided that the word of God says this stuff is garbage. We need to get rid of it. And God said, this is the man who loves me with all, my heart, with all his heart and his mind and his strength. If you want to love the God with all your heart, mind and strength and you want God to say that of you, deal with the idols of your heart. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, at the beginning of this series, a tough series, a a no-nonsense series, a series that doesn't pull any punches, that forces us to a place of introspection, of prayerful introspection, I just ask, Holy Spirit, in your kindness, that you would convict and challenge the attitudes, the mindsets of our heart where we have set up idols that draw our adoration and our attention, that command our allegiance, that seek to manipulate the desires of our heart and set us on a course other than the one that God has set for us. Father, we just ask that over this week and these coming weeks, not because you want to bash us over a head with a big stick of rebuke, Although sometimes that maybe that's needed, but God, because you're so passionate to bring us to a land that's flowing with milk and honey, you don't want a stiff neck bowing down to the values and principles of the world. God, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from our uh, our false ideas of what needs to be the God of our lives, and I pray that you will help us to be fully surrendered to you, that we would love you with our heart, our mind, our soul and our strength, that we give you the adoration and the worship you fully deserve. In Jesus' name, Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchorienting.com.